This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select pretty much at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 108th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Marvel Team-Up 144 for Marvel Comics, of course. Cover dated August 1984. But first, we have a little feedback on the wrapping up of episode 100. On part 5, supportive feedbacker Sir Martin of Grey wrote in about the Titans book we covered. I enjoyed that run a lot. It does make me laugh how the Titans are drawn to the construction industry as they always seem to build their own headquarters. Yeah, they are definitely builders, no doubt about that. It's kind of funny how a trait like that just does seem to repeat for certain characters or teams. On episode 6, the final part of that marathon of a celebration of summer episodes, a lot of the guests on that, uh, both in the main portion of the show and the outtakes, had some things to say. The lovely Stella expressed her outrage at being included in the bloopers, but I think when I rebranded that segment as bonus content, that calmed her down a bit. Although David Ace Gutierrez did call her out on her knowledge of classic sci-fi TV, did Moose just refer to Shatner as that Star Trek guy? You're a teacher, Stella! J. Dave said that he was glad to be a part of this. David Ace said it was an honor. And podcasting's Michael Bailey said it was a true pleasure. Luke Giaconetti said that he was glad to be running the anchor leg for this podcaster relay race. And of course, the remedial shag had a thing or two to say. I love that I'm a recurring topic of discussion in the bloopers. You are all puppets on my string. (laughs) Paul Heeks specifically commented on the end of show material. Thanks for blooperizing me. But then he talked about episode numbering calling into question my math skills. I'm not sure about your episode numbering after the event, though. It feels like a cheat, much like the way you fudge the quarter price all the time. No, no, a million times no. I hardly ever fudge the quarter price. But this does bring up an interesting point, and that is, don't believe Stella, she lies. I've said that for listeners, that if you find a three-for-a-dollar box, those symbolically, in spirit, get the quarter-bin seal of approval. But I don't do that on the show hardly ever. And when you throw in a hundred books at 14 cents and free comic book day, our average price paid per book on this podcast is way under 25 cents despite what Stella and Shagalicious may tell you. 
The hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, said that he was expecting an invitation to episode 200 as well. My plan, just between us, is not to think about episode 200 until I'm done recording, I don't know, episode 199? Eh, maybe 198. But yes, I certainly do hope to have the hero on the show sometime between now and, let's say, episode 201. I also heard from Michael Carlisle, who reported in that he was currently on part three of the episode and enjoying working his way through it. Michael runs the Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu blog at crapboxofcthulhu.blogspot.com. And if you don't know how to spell Cthulhu, maybe you're not as big a geek as you think you are. And, and I know that podcast listeners and blog readers, those populations don't always intersect. But if you are someone who likes their comic reviews in blog form, as well as podcasts, of course, I highly recommend his blog. There are a bunch of us who talk about the low end of comic books, but I think that the crap box is the closest in spirit to this podcast. The other ones of us who toil in this space include Nathaniel Wayne of 90s Comics Retrial and Worst Collection Ever, hosted by Jen Stansfield and Sean Merrick, and the granddaddy of them all, the video reviews of Linkara at atop the fourth wall where bad comics burn. And I recommend all of these shows, and certainly between the five of us, there is huge overlap in the books we cover. Occasionally, individual issues have been reviewed at multiples of these sites, but certainly the titles that are discussed hugely overlap. All good efforts, but I think that Michael's blog, Crap Box of Cthulhu, shares the most in terms of approach and attitude with what I'm trying to do here at the quarter bin. Michael added, I can't tell you how many times I've had a sharp intake of breath when you announce a new title. Since I'm listening to episode 100 during drive time, I can't do the little excited banging of fingertips motion that would truly convey my excitement or dread of what is coming next. Well, I hope you survived the experience, buddy. It was great to get that specific feedback from my brother-at-arms of the cheap comic book world. Thanks, Michael. Good to hear from you. And my buddy Terry Colucci said he enjoyed being on the show. Your editing made me sound like I half knew what I was talking about. Awesome job, Professor. Well, thank you, Terry. And and let me say this. I know listeners aren't overly familiar with Terry, but I want you to all to know that even without my editing, he definitely eh, half knew what he was talking about. And a shout-out goes to Ben Avery, who gave episode 100 all six long parts of it. A nice shout-out on a recent episode of Comic Book Time Machine. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. And Karen, from Between the Pages, tweeted at me, saying that she liked the kitty books I've been talking about on the Comics Reading Journal episodes, from publishers like Dell and Charlton, Archie, Harvey, Goldkey. She asked whether I've ever covered a funny book here on the Quarterbin Show. 
And the easy answer is no. Not the closest we've come is Jughead number one on the last part of episode 100. That was with special guest Laurel Mountainflower. But I wanted to talk about this topic a bit here, about kitty comics and funny books. Because in the last year or two, I have read a ton of these types of books, often supplied by generous listeners, occasionally purchased out of quarter bins myself. And I've not put them in the database for the quarter bin show because I didn't really know how to synopsize a joke book or for an Archie or or, or sad sack issue that tend to have four five-page stories and a couple of one-page gags. Other than maybe reading the entire stories, but then I'd maybe want a couple of extra voices, and then we're getting into audio drama territory with the potential of a, I don't know, 237% increase in editing time. So I just shuffled all of those those kiddie books, whether they were adventure books or, or funny books, into, as the great Kansan Gregor Rujo calls it, the never-ending reading pile, and not into the quarter bin database. But now that I've read more of those books, and prompted by Karen's tweet, I I think I'm going to take another look through those. I still think keeping the Archies and Caspers and Little Lulus out makes sense, because those are straight gag books. Again, I'm talking about the classic Archies from the 60s and 70s, not the current rebooted version. And like I said, I just don't think I've cracked the code on how to cover that kind of book. However, not all of the kiddie books fall into that template of being the short five-page stories. There are some kiddie books that follow what I think of as the more traditional format of either a full novel-length story, or maybe a 16-pager and then a seven-page backup, something like that. And I think that those I could cover here, just because that format is more similar to the comics we normally talk about here. Now, those are more often than not Disney books that have that format, but also some of the Charlton's and Gold Keys fit that format as well. So what I'm going to do is go through the never-ending reading pile kids' comics division and pull out the books that fit that format and put those into the quarter bin database. I'm certainly not opposed to including those books here, especially now that as I've thought about it, I do think that some of them fit the right format for comics that can be synopsized and discussed in this type of format. But all the other books, the joke books, the gag books, all of those that I read, I will continue to talk about on those monthly comics reading journal episodes right here on this very podcast feed. But I am willing to put some selected kids comics in the general database for this show. And then we'll let the randomizer do its work and see when one comes up. Or if any other listeners kind of like this idea, Let me know if you'd be interested in me specifically talking about one of these types of kids' comics, and I can influence the randomizer in that direction. 
I bet you weren't expecting such a detailed response to your 140-character question, Karen. But thanks for asking, and needless to say, that was a great question. All right. Thanks for the feedback, friends. I appreciate it all. And we have a book to talk about this episode. Marvel Team-Up 144 had an original cover price of 60 cents, meaning I paid almost a 60% discount off that manufacturer-suggested retail price. And you know all I had to do to earn that discount was wait a mere 33 years. Boom! Patience paying off. The cover of the issue, by Greg LaRock, shows Spider-Man and the awesome Mood Knight dodging fire, which is being blown at them by a scary dude in red. This is Spidey in his black costume, by the way. And we are told that if we can't stand the heat, don't mess with the white dragon. Who I guess is the guy in red? Hmm. Hashtag confused? The story, My Sword I Lay Down, was written by Carrie Burkett with art by Greg LaRock and Mike Esposito. These are all solid comic book professionals, although I was quite surprised to see Carrie Burkett's name in a Marvel book. My first thought at seeing that was, wasn't he a DC lifer? A quick skim of Comic Book DB reveals that Burkett was just pretty much a DC lifer. I see him writing a few stories for Red Circle, that, that Archie imprint around this era, and less than 10 Marvel stories, including, look like three or four more from Marvel Team-Up. Here in its final year, couple of spectacular Spider-Mans and Sheena 1 and 2. Everything else the man wrote appears to have been for DC. We start with the sky weeping. White hot lightning crackles in sharp, bitter anguish. Thunder booms a heavy, solemn dirge. Moaning winds heave in ragged sobs of grief. The night mourns. Moon Knight is atop a building in the dark, rainy night, looking down on a smaller building. Behind those walls, a noble man of peace lies murdered. He's in Chinatown, desiring to pay his respects to Du Yang, a friend recently murdered by White Dragon. But the son, Chu Yang, wants him to leave immediately, having no right to invade his family's grief. But the widow sticks up for Moon Knight, saying her husband spoke often of the one called Moon Knight as an honorable man. Moon Knight pays his respects before the coffin, then bids the widow goodbye, commenting on her late husband's commitment to help him find evil men hiding in Chinatown. Now, the white dragon boasts openly of slaying him. I will bring this murderer to justice. But again, the son says they don't need an outsider to settle their scores, telling the departing Moon Knight to just stay out of Chinatown altogether. The days that follow are filled with fear and uncertainty as the Dragon Lords, the gang under the control of White Dragon, attempts to seize power in the district. The warriors of the Tiger's Claw rally to resist. A gang war is definitely brewing. 
Peter Parker is tasked by Bugle Editor-in-Chief Robbie Robertson to take some photos of the Chinatown street violence. He takes a cab to the area, a cab driven by Jake Lockley, one of the secret identities of Moon Knight. Peter realizes that his old school buddy Philip Chang has a family restaurant in the area, and he stops by for a visit, and he learns that others are interested in finding Phil as well. Peter ducks up the back stairs to chat with Phil, saying he doesn't want to butt in where he doesn't belong, but he just wants to, you know, butt in where he doesn't belong. Chang explains that both sides in the gang war have tried recruiting him because he is a mega super-duper martial arts master. So now the Tiger's Claw comes to me seeking help, desiring me to lead them to stand against the White Dragon. But after his parents were killed, he had vowed to never use violence again, not even to help my own people. Peter sympathizes, but doesn't see it the same way. As he tells Philip, when you've got special abilities or talents, sometimes you've got a responsibility to use them for others. Philip begins to reiterate his position, but the white dragon calls him out. And this is actually a decent costume, white and red, with some fins down the back that look a little dragonish. This is evidently a new costume, as Spidey points out in a page or two. And of course, he can breathe fire, because dragon. Philip tells Peter he must leave, that since he is not of Chinatown, this is not his fight. Pete jumps down from his buddy's apartment, the black suit appearing on him as he descends. Man, this zingy new instant costume has my old one beat by a mile. He jumps onto a couple of the white dragon goons and beats them up. But inside the restaurant, another henchman, this one bald, shirtless, and with a hook for a hand. I'm going to repeat that in case you missed it. Bald, shirtless, and with a hook for a hand. This guy is destroying the restaurant until Spidey webs up his arm and tosses him aside. Just as the white dragon is getting ready to fire-breathe the place, Moon Knight crashes in from the kitchen, kicking the hook-handed guy in the back of the neck, and that's gotta hurt. But he and Spidey are not really welcomed into the fight. We cannot allow anyone to interfere in Chinatown, one of Chang's relatives says. And despite the attacks, the violence, Philip still sticks to his pacifist commitment. Spidey and Moon Knight have a discussion about this, Spidey not understanding it at all. And Moon Knight saying that he can't judge the man, having seen throughout his life the toll that violence can do to one's soul. Grabbing the ladder from the helicopter hovering above him, Moon Knight comments that maybe Philip Chang has the right idea. In the copter, Frenchie points out that Mark, another one of Moon Knight's identities, seems down. He thinks something very strange is happening, and that maybe the cabbie, Jake Lockley, is the man to get into it. The following day, at a rather dilapidated establishment on the Lower East Side, Lockley meets up with his information broker, Jacob Crawley. But his information is rather meager. 
and he has been able to ascertain that the White Dragon's escape from penal servitude was engineered by someone highly elevated in the criminal hierarchy of our fair city. As the days pass, Spider-Man keeps an eye on Philip's apartment above the restaurant. So far, White Dragon hasn't been back, but if he does show up, I want to be here. Eventually, White Dragon uses a diversion to capture Philip, sending his guys to attack Wo Fong's import store. While his thugs are telling the owner who now runs Chinatown, Spidey crashes into the store. As soon as he notices that White Dragon isn't there, he hears the villain speaking through a megaphone. White Dragon is addressing all the residents of Chinatown from the roof of the building. He has Philip Chang beside him. This cringing fool is the one the Tiger's Claw seeks to lead them. Here, before you all, I shall prove that none can stand against me. The people have gathered, and once he has defeated Philip, all defiance in their spirits will be crushed. Their last hope will be gone. Philip continues to refuse to fight, allowing White Dragon to rain punches upon him. Look at your great champion, Tigers. He is nothing but a blubbering, craven coward. You shame yourself and your ancestors. Spider-Man is watching this pleading silently for his old friend to fight. He notices Chu Yang sneaking off in a hurry and tags along, overhearing Chu Yang tell another man, nearly all of the Tiger Clawed members are in the street watching the fight. When the bomb goes off, they will all die. Then no one will be left to challenge the White Dragon's rule. Spider-Man breaks up this little conversation forcefully and has a chat with Chu Yang, criticizing him for betraying his late uncle, who had built the society into a force for good from Chinatown. Back on the rooftop, White Dragon is gloating over the bloody and bruised Philip Chang. But his gloating is interrupted by Moon Knight, who has corralled the bald, hook-handed guy, an associate of White Dragon. Hear me, people of Chinatown. The White Dragon claims that he seeks the power in this area for himself, but he is merely a puppet of another. It turns out that the someone highly elevated in the criminal hierarchy of our fair city, as Crawley put it, was in fact the kingpin. Kingpin recruited White Dragon in a bid to take over Chinatown. Moon Knight tells White Dragon that he's finished. By bringing in outsiders, you've betrayed Chinatown and made yourself an outsider. Even the dragon's underlings don't stop Moon Knight from bringing him in. Spider-Man checks out the action, sees that Moon Knight has White Dragon in control, and goes to find that bomb. Using a spidey sense as a sort of radar, he finds it inside a vase in the import store. No time to defuse the thing. I've just got to get it out of range. As Moon Knight finishes off White Dragon with the proclamation, For the memory of Do Yang, he and Philip see an explosion from the area of the waterfront. Spider-Man joins the pair on the rooftop a bit later, and asks his old friend if he still thinks it was worth it to not fight the White Dragon. You could have been killed if not for Moon Knight. There are defeats using nonviolence, just as there are defeats using violence. 
neither is a sure path to victory, but I have kept the vow I swore and preserved my own integrity. Moon Knight tells Philip that he's a wise man before leaping off the rooftop to make his dramatic exit. Spidey still doesn't get it, wondering how Moon Knight, who fights all the time, can say it's not wise to fight. But Philip Chang gets the last words. He sounds as if he too has known great violence in his life, Spider-Man, and has learned from experience the terrible price it bears. The end. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap Shield there? <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny looking hammer, would you? It's, it's on that book and I can't move it. Dad, where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! Ah! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? Hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And we're back. I've talked about this before in a variety of places, but I want to mention here that there's a difference between story and script. And in this one, I don't totally dig the story, actually. Outsider heroes trying to settle a Chinatown squabble? That's okay, but that's just not a great pitch to me. But what Burkett did with that average story, the script he turned it into, is pretty good. I don't remember him being this emotional or dramatic in his writing over at DC, but it's possible I'm not recalling that correctly. But either way, here, he gets into the overwrought, almost overwritten narration and emotional beats, like that opening page about the sky weeping and the night mourning that seemed so perfectly Marvel of the late 70s into the mid-80s. I think that stuff is still on the good side of the line. It's close, but I still like that. And I liked Peter running into someone with power 
but who is not exercising, at least to Peter's mind, great responsibility. And their conversation, Peter and Philip Chang, I think those are well done. Both positions are properly presented. Both characters get their moments to argue their side. The book doesn't seem to come down on one or the other. I mean, you could say that Moon Knight is on Philip's side, so it's two against one. But in the power ranking of Marvel characters, one Peter Parker is worth more than one Moon Knight and a Philip Chang. So, uh, And it's not just that Peter doesn't agree with the nonviolent approach. He can't comprehend it. Moon Knight, who's trying to redeem himself from a violent mercenary past, is much more sympathetic to the worldview, although he is not himself enlightened enough to be there yet. That's a cool bit of characterization, really, for all three of those guys. So I like the fact that they had the argument. And as so often happens in real life, when friends or colleagues have an argument or disagreement, afterwards, no minds are changed. I would think it would be tempting for Briquette to say that Spider-Man is right, that his mantra concerning power and responsibility is beyond reproach. That's always the right way to go. But he doesn't go there. And that's the details of the scripting, that everyone ends the issue in the same position with the same opinion, same beliefs that they had at the beginning of the story. And that's worth noting, I think. I was not familiar with Philip Chang when I first read this and kind of assumed he was one of those characters that show up on like TV shows in the fourth season as a lead character's great old buddy, you've heard me talk about him, who's never been mentioned before that episode and is never mentioned again after. But just a little digging was enough for me to learn that this was maybe his 20, 25th appearance. Now, he barely appeared after this issue, at least until the 2015 volume of Amazing. I don't know the extent of his characterization in that, that recent version, but he has appeared in about 10 of the first 30 issues of that title. So Briquette did pick an existing Asian character for this story as the reason that Peter gets involved, although my understanding is that this is a major retcon to Philip's backstory. My understanding is that in his first appearance, it's shown that, sure, he's pretty good at kung fu, but was mostly portrayed as just one of Peter's school buddies, another science major. But here... He's basically presented as a super-duper martial artist along the lines of Iron Fist or Shang-Chi. There was a sense of that coming out of nowhere for the character. There's a reference in the story to Peter being really tired, which was also happening in the regular Spidey books. He doesn't learn this for a while, but what's happening is that the new black costume has been taking him out for nighttime web-slinging while he's asleep. That's a a nice little bit of continuity to the main book. Again, a nice bit of scripting. But the key to a team-up book is the guest star and how that guest is treated. And I confess that I am among a small, elite group of comic book folks. Yes, I'm a Moon Knight fan. Yes, I picked this book out of the quarter bin, not because of Spidey, but because of Moon Knight. Dave Elliott, I see you there. Hey, stop laughing, okay? 
I picked up all 38 issues of the first Moon Knight run from 1980 to 1984, pretty much from the get-go. My memory is a little hazy, but I think I picked up like the first dozen or so at like a a one-day hotel con, maybe 81, 82, and I remember totally digging them. Then I started getting some new from the shop and used other shows and comic store back issues to fill in the remainders. I really loved that series. Doug Mensch, Bill Sienkiewicz did most of the first 30 issues or so, and the title was really solid for most of its run. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise, Moon Knight is a total Batman ripoff. It's not identical. There are enough differences to pass the legal requirements. But he's totally Batman. Except better. Because Batman only has one secret identity. But Moon Knight has three. Mark Spector, he's the mercenary with the military training. Stephen Grant, he's the Bruce Wayne. No, really, he's a rich millionaire playboy. And he's also cab driver Jake Lockley. The way to think of Moon Knight is that he's Batman if he appeared as Matches Malone as often as he did Bruce Wayne, along with a third identity thrown in. I mean, come on, the math is simple. Batman, one secret identity. Moon Knight, three secret identities. Do the math, people. Three is more than one. Hello, winning! And at this point, for Moon Knight, these were actual secret identities, not multiple personalities. That psychological disorder stuff was added to the character later. I did like that this story had the Jake Lockley secret identity, as well as bringing in two of the main supporting cast. Frenchie? You know, he's Alfred. If Alfred were French. And a mercenary. But other than that, he's Alfred. And Crawley, he's Moon Knight's eyes and ears on the street. I like that Carrie Burkett reached into Moon Knight's world to get these characters. And they were all handled pretty well. But yes, we do have to talk about the elephant in the room, or maybe the dragon in the room. And that's the Chinatown stuff. It's tricky because it's cool that they based a story in an ethnic subculture, with a member of that subculture, Philip Chang, in a prominent role. And the villains were even members of the group The White Dragon. That is actually part of of the goal of any discussion of representation, to portray members of underrepresented groups in a variety of roles. And here, they are two different sides, you have conflict within the group, You have heroes and villains, and broadly speaking, that's a good thing for representation. But some of the details do tend to fall into stereotypes. The Chinese gangs, martial arts skills, talk of honor and keeping outsiders out, all of that. And maybe a bit of that just seems a little over the top here, three plus decades later. But I don't think it actually crosses too many lines. There didn't seem to be many, if if any, truly cringeworthy moments, which you can't always say when any pop culture item of the past touches on issues of ethnicity or identity. What worked, I think, was the various opinions presented among the occupants of Chinatown. They weren't portrayed as a monolithic group with one set of stereotypical beliefs and ideas. And the ending reveal 
that the white dragon is actually working for the kingpin and that that was what brought him down was a nice touch. It was a nice comeuppance for him, revealing him to be a hypocrite, really, not being a strong leader for Chinatown, but working as an agent for just another white criminal. The theme of outsiders was present throughout the whole story, so that being the downfall made sense. That didn't come out of the blue, in other words. The ending made sense given what we'd been told during the course of the story. And for a one-off, that's all you really want. The verdict on Marvel Team-Up 144, it's not an all-time great. It's not epic in scope. It's not a story that has ripples or consequences for these characters, except maybe Philip Chang, who I said didn't appear much after this. It's a pretty simple, straightforward adventure, truth be told. But it's pretty well told. And there are some subtle, nuanced character bits for all three of the main leads. And of course, it's a one-off, a complete story in one little issue. And Moon Knight is treated pretty well, and that matters too. A definite quarter-bin deal. A done-in-one wonder, it could be said. That wraps up my coverage of Marvel Team-Up 144, bringing episode 108 to a close. And episode 109, we'll be starting a new ninth episode series. From episodes 49 to 99, all of those episodes ending in nines were dedicated to Doom 2099. And rightly so. We covered the first 15 issues of that excellent series, and ended just because that's where the issues I found in Quarterbins ended. And as I was looking ahead to the post-episode 100 schedule, I was looking for another comic series that could possibly serve that function, to be revisited every X number of episodes. But I didn't know what that title would be. Earlier in the year one day, I was flipping through the cheap bins at World's Greatest Comics and saw a bunch of pretty thick books. And that always draws my attention. Whether it's 48 pages, 60, 80, 100, the more pages the better when you're spending a quarter. And what those thick books were, one right after the other, were the first five issues of the six-issue series Marvel Magazine, a 96-page reprint title. At first, I was just going to read them, not put them in the podcast database. But the more I thought about it, I thought those five might work for what I was looking for. Originally, I was going to cover one every five episodes, like 110, 115, 120. But those are pretty long books. Four full stories. And those are going to be longer than average episodes. So spreading them out a bit more seemed like a winning idea. And then I sort of did the math. Since I have five of these, I can do them at 109, 119, 129, 139, and 149. So I like the idea of finishing this up by 150 and then moving on to something else after that. So with all of that as long-winded explanation... In episode 109, we'll be looking at Marvel Superheroes Magazine number one, from Marvel Comics, of course, 
cover dated October 1994, featuring reprints of four full-length stories, featuring Daredevil, the FF, Hulk, and Iron Man. If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.